<laughs> Why is good, I hope. It's good. I know I've still been on a little okay. bit of a high from some of the things that I think we learned yesterday. I and should have put it in my I've been pretty excited in thinking about some of them this morning. But before coming over, I still didn't feel like getting up and taking a shower. That's, that's fine. But uh, once I did, it felt a lot better. And uh, there are a lot of exciting things for today as well. It uh, may be a fast day, but it's got very exciting meaning. So I'm looking forward to getting into some of that. Uh, as you know, the Feast of Tabernacles starts on uh, Friday. We'll have a one o'clock service with a potluck as we normally do on a holy day, beginning the feast on Friday. <clears throat> uh, before getting to the sermon then, we have special music uh, by Gloria. This is a song she uh, put together from Malachi 3:16 and 17 and Isaiah 66:5. Uh, entitled, They Shall Be Mine. I guess I'm on now. Oh, we have it backwards. Lord, be close, 
Turn to Leviticus 23, right? I won't disappoint you. Let's go there. We all so often do at the beginning of a holy day. Leviticus 23, he lists all of them here and uh, says very little about the Feast of Trumpets and quite a little about the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> as we all know, as a brief review, Passover is the beginning of the plan of God in the spring where Christ himself was sacrificed for us. <coughs> of course, they used a sheep or a goat back then, but it was ultimately a type of what was to be. And pictures his death, his resurrection, and us putting sin out of our lives, and then the days of unleavened bread, six more, the last of which I think we have learned is about the uh, deliverance and restoration, which is coming up soon for the Church of God here at the end. So that was an, a very important element to add, I think, to our understanding of the Holy Days. And then it is tied directly to Pentecost by a 50-day count. Pentecost then uh, changes the emphasis in one sense, not an overall sense, but one sense from Christ and what he did for us and us getting sin out of our lives uh, because Pentecost then is about the bride, the first fruits, those who will be the bride of Christ when he comes in glory to marry her. And there has to be an awful lot of preparation for that to occur. First had to come his sacrifice for sin so that she would not be a sinful bride, she would be a clean bride. And then she does her part through the rest of unleavened to get the sin out so that she does not come to marry Christ in a sinful manner or fashion. So there's great meaning in everything to do with the Holy Days. Pentecost, then, is more of an engagement where through his sacrifice and our willingness to clean ourselves up, he becomes engaged to us uh, via his Holy Spirit, which came to the church in Acts 2 there in a way to dwell in them, and he says, that he would live his life in us. Now, that's similar to a husband and wife who become one and they live into each other. They become a part of each other, at one, if you will, together. Uh, and engagement is a formal statement that we intend to live our lives together, to not be apart, but to interact between ourselves to form one unit, 
not two separate units, but a unit together. And they are to be close. They are to communicate well. They are not to fight and argue. They are to get along and submit themselves, each to the other, and particularly in that sense, the wife to the husband as he is the head, but he's not better than and he's not higher than or above his wife in any way. But he is to be a leader and lead her in right ways, not push her into right ways or wrong ways, but to lead her by example and how he treats her to go in right ways. Now, Christ is there to do that with us. He's not there to tempt us in any wrong. He says he doesn't. He's not there to put us down, as husbands often do with wives. He's there to pick us up, to lift us, to help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. That is how he is the leader, primarily, by example and by treatment, uh, not treating her as something beneath him or below him, because she's not. They were together as equals, and we are to become equal with Christ and be at one with him in the engagement period with the help of his Holy Spirit then and thereafter, we are to become more like him, and he says he lives his life in us. We are the apple of his eye, if you will. And he has great care about us, counts our hair, uh, very, very concerned about us and everything, and us being content, being happy, being joyful, one of the fruits of his spirit, uh, being patient being loving and kind, all those things he is, and he expects us to be that way. And he gave us physical marriage as a type of that so that we might practice it, <laughs> so that we might learn how to do that because it doesn't come natural. We are by nature selfish. We are by nature wanting our way. And... You try to act pretty nice before you get married. We always want our best foot forward. Which one is it? The best one forward before we get married, lest they back out on us. So then after you get married, they can't back out on us. Not supposed to, anyway. Uh, and then somehow that selfishness tends to kind of come back, and we have to fight it from then on. That's just the way it is with human beings. So, he gives us this period of time. Sometimes summertime is called the great uh, hot summer, or how they put it, I can't say it now. Uh, hot summer, anyway. From the time you're engaged until you get married, there's a time in there of anticipation. Long hot summer is what I was trying to say. Uh, anticipation and excitement. There's also a little fear mixed in. How's this going to work out? Uh, there may be some doubts, some concerns. All kinds of things happen between the engagement and ultimately then being married. And we want to do the best we can, be the best we can, 
And Christ wants us doing that during this time, from the time he gave us his spirit at baptism, but symbolically and certainly in in reality on Acts 2 at Pentecost. We are to look to him, get to know him better. That's what an engagement period partly is for, is to get to know for, is to get to know each other better. And we need to know the one we're going to marry very well before we marry him. And he needs to know us very well. He made one statement to some who thought that they were doing okay. And he said, if you're not keeping my commandments, I don't know you. Now, is he going to marry somebody he doesn't know? I kind of doubt it. He has to know us inside and out, and we have to meet his standard. And that's why he gives us the long, hot summer of frustration, of temptation, of uh, worry, of fretting, maybe of doubting, but learning to be positive and strong and following his ways so that we will be fitting for him as a bride. That's what this is all about. So Pentecost starts that engagement period, and that ends after we're resurrected and made immortal at the first resurrection, trumpets. Kind only begets kind, and we as humans cannot be married to Christ. We're too far below his standard and his quality and his capacities and abilities. So we have to have a tremendous upgrade on trumpets where the physical becomes spirit, where the mortal becomes immortal, where that which is temporary becomes eternal. All those things he already is. So he has to (coughs) put us through this trial or engagement period and then do a final touch-up, if you will, uh, a touch-up from the ground to the heavens, where we become God, become spirit, like he is. And then spirit can marry spirit. So we look to that upgrade, and we know very acutely, I think, that we fall short of being as he is. And we fail in some way, every day that goes by. So we keep working at it and we realize that we have to have an absolute miracle to be transformed into spirit and all the sin drops away. And part of the meaning of atonement is right there. So let's get into this now from the day of atonement forward uh, from the trumpets the next is atonement. Uh, which pictures the marriage of Christ to his bride. After that, we deal with children during the millennium. Uh, Training, guiding, teaching those whom Christ is also going to make his eternal children throughout eternity. But there's a special group that becomes the bride, and we'll look at that as well. So let's go into this, verse 27. Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, that's today, there shall be a day of atonement. 
it shall be a holy convocation to you. So it's a day of atonement, which means when you atone for something, you get rid of it, whatever it is. And you become at one. At one meant is the, the root here. As long as there's something between you, some kind of argument, some kind of feelings that are not all love and closeness, that has to be fixed and atoned. Somehow, we have to apologize. We have to accept apologies. We have to forgive in order to walk together closely. And Christ also said, those who cannot uh, have to be agreed in order to walk together. Because if you're not agreed, you're going different directions while you're still trying to be together. And that doesn't work too good. So, it represents becoming at one. It is also a very holy convocation uh, which is a commanded assembly. Uh, you're not going to mess your wedding, are you? Uh, <laughs> you know, you're going you're to be there with your wedding garments on, ready to get married when the wedding comes. And he wants us to come to atonement since it pictures our wedding to him and be sure and be here. So it's holy, it is a meeting, and it is a commanded be there meeting, all in one. And you shall afflict your souls. Now, how many of you fasted on your wedding day? I doubt anybody. I certainly didn't. I looked upon that as a day to eat and drink and be married. And be married. All those things. But he says, afflict your souls, which is defined in other places as fasting. No food, no water. Happy days are here again. <laughs> I don't like fasting. Never have. Probably never will. But I'm going to get over it where I don't have to anymore. You know, Christ did say about his disciples when he was asked, why, why do they fast? He says, well, I'm leaving. They'll fast when I'm gone. Then they'll feast when I come back. Don't need to fast if I'm here. Now, he's not here. I mean, he's here with us in spirit, but he's not here so that we see him and know his presence in that way. But you know, the Day of Atonement, maybe I'm saying this a little early, I'm just talking, is going to become a feast day. The marriage supper, the feast of the Lamb, even these fast days that we keep, the fast of the seventh month we just finished a few days ago, will become a feast of joy, according to Zechariah 7. All these things about the destruction of the church and the destruction of Jerusalem and all of that is going to be fixed. And then you no longer need to fast about it being broken. You rejoice that it's fixed. So those become feasts of joy. And I look forward to the day when I can go together to with Christ to celebrate our wedding anniversary and have another feast. The day of feasting, the day of marriage. We're not married yet. 
and He's not here yet. So we fast to do what? Humble ourselves, get rid of our selfishness, Isaiah 58, where we serve others and help them and get our selfish, egocentric, chip-on-the-shoulder personality out of the way. Because when you're fasting, you don't feel real strong. You don't feel like fighting necessarily. Uh, you feel like, ah, I think I'll rest. So it's to humble us, to make us meek. And that's what he wants. He wants a humble, meek, submissive wife. So that he can easily lead her without having to jerk on her reins all the time. So he wants us to come before him humbly, lovingly, kindly, gently. And fasting tends to break the ridge of human nature and resistance and negativity that we tend to have because of what Christ called the Pharisees' father, the devil. He started all this by rebelling against God, and it made a mess in the universe when he rebelled. So he wants us fasting and submissive, not rebellious. That's why we fast on the day that pictures our marriage, when Christ will be there, we'll be there with him, we'll have the marriage ceremony, and we'll have a feast like no feast has ever been, and he will drink wine again with us in the kingdom, starting that day. So this is a holy convocation. It has great and deep meaning of the marriage of the Lamb. You shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of joining, of atonement, of becoming at one, to make an atonement for you before the Eternal, your God. We come before Him to fast, to pray, to ask for forgiveness, to supplicate Him to forgive us and accept us. So that's why we come fasting. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. If we don't fast on this day, picturing our marriage to Christ, we're not a worthy bride and will be cut off from God's people. We're going to read some more scriptures about being cut off or kicked out a little later here. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Now our generations and our dwellings here are going to cease when we are changed to spirit and approach the Day of Atonement and the wedding because we're going to have a whole new home a whole new life. Everything will be different. But this is as long as we're physical here. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your soul, says it again, in the ninth day of the month at evening, from even to even, shall you separate, celebrate your Sabbath. Now, he wants to be sure that we do it in the right time frame. So he says it's on the tenth, but on the evening of the ninth is when we start. So you go from the evening of the ninth, clearly stated, to the evening end of the tenth. And it's from sundown to sundown. We got people 
right here even now, we keep the day from morning to morning. Absolute contradiction of this. They keep the Feast of Atonement. Are they going to do it like it says here? Or are they going to still do their morning-to-morning thing? It's unbelievable to me, but there you have it. The two most solemn days in the year, Passover, clearly shows from even to even. The next most hallowed day, and maybe more so, is the Day of Atonement, and it's very clearly stated evening to evening. So we're doing it right. I have no doubt of that. I missed one word up here somewhere. Uh, oh, I guess I did in verse 30. It said you'd be cut off from your people if you didn't keep the Day of Atonement. It also says... Uh, if you do any work in that day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. God will destroy them from among his people for working on this day. He makes this pretty clear, doesn't he? That this is pretty serious business, this day of affliction. Don't eat any water, don't drink any, or eat any food or drink any water, and don't work, and come to the holy convocation, come before God, This is a solemn day. Very solemn. Now let's go to Leviticus 16. I don't want to cover this in detail like I have in the past sometimes. But the wedding of Christ has a serious problem. There is one who did rebel against God and turn from him, and tried to become God, tried to take over his throne. We know him today as Satan, the devil, uh, who is in rebellion. He is known as, one of his names is the Destroyer, and he does not want to see Christ marry his bride. He doesn't want to see any humans survive. And he has people here that he is in very, very close collaboration with now, at the end of the age, human beings whom he is convinced need to destroy human life from off the face of the earth. Some say 90%, and some have now even come out and said all life from off the face of the earth. I mean trees and fish and everything they want dead. They want it to be a dead planet. Why? Satan wants any vestige of God's creation destroyed. Nothing remaining of God's creation, and he wants to destroy God, and he's going to try again to take over God's throne. Now, he stands against Christ in this marriage thing. He wants the bride destroyed. He wants her to go into the lake of fire. He doesn't want there to be any first fruits that can be harvested. He is doing his level best to find a way to kill you and me. And the only reason he can't is because God God stops him. He would have killed Job if God hadn't said, Now, now, you can do this, this, and this, but don't you kill him. He set bounds on him. And he sets bounds on what he can do with you and me. We do our part in staying close to God so Satan will flee from us. 
He doesn't like the Spirit of God, so he's in a he's in a bad fix. I guess we all knew that. But while he wants us dead and wants to be around tempting us and causing us to sin and die, he doesn't like to be around anyone who has God's Spirit. So it's kind of a sweet and sour. Back and forth he goes between wanting to be with you and kill you and not wanting to be with you because you have God's Spirit. Puts him in a very frustrating position. But if he could substitute himself in Christ's place and marry you and live with you forever, he might change that approach a little bit. If you're going to have her, I want her dead. If I can have her, maybe. But he'd be awful hard to live with. You wouldn't want to go there. And yet here we are, and he's courting us. He's trying to get us to go his way instead of Christ's way. So in a way, he's an evil, uh, not fiancé, you're not uh, engaged to him, I hope. Not at this point. We were before. But he's there trying to steal you away, put it that way, from Christ. Now, Leviticus 16 deals with that. They were to bring two goats before God on the Day of Atonement. Uh, Two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Now, there is a sin offering in both. And some people get this really mixed up and they think that both of these goats refer to Christ. And that cannot be. the, The conditions that he lays out here cannot be that. So I'll make that statement right off the bat, and I, I can, I think, easily prove it in the context and disprove what they're trying to say. Anyway, uh, verse 8, Aaron cast lots on the two goats, one for the Lord and one to be a scapegoat. Not the Lord, but a scapegoat, or in the Hebrew, an azazel, and that word means one who went for himself. Who is the one in the universe who went away from God and went for himself? Selfish. To the core is Satan the devil. And he tried not only to be for himself only, he tried to get rid of God so that he could be the big such a much in the universe. That's what he tried to do. And he's not done yet. He's utterly selfish. One who went for himself. Now, how does that fit Christ? It doesn't at all, does it? Just the definition of the name doesn't fit Christ. He's there to love all. He's not there to puff himself up at all and to be selfish. He wants to share. He wants to love and give. That's his nature. This goat doesn't have that nature. We'll see. Now, he does have something to do with a sin offering, and that's their big point, that only Christ forgives sin and his sacrifice forgave sin. But now, let's ask this question. Is Christ responsible for our sin? No. 
He tempts no man. God and Christ are not responsible for anybody's sin. Who was responsible for the first sin? Satan in rebelling against God, not keeping the first commandment. Where was the next sin? Adam and Eve. And who caused them to sin? <coughs> he is responsible for sin. The one who brought it into the universe. So, he does bear some responsibility for your sins and mine because he's trying to get us to do it all the time. He wants us to sin. And he puts all kinds of things in front of us to cause us to. And he's got a culture around the world that leads people to break the Ten Commandments. Everything about man's culture is contrary to God. And it's set up to cause us to go away from not God, not to Him. I sure do need a drink of water. My throat's getting a little raw already. <coughs> I guess not. Maybe I should just back off and talk a little lower. But that's not going to happen either. Anyway, here are these two goats. He'll bring uh, the bullock of the sin offering for himself and kill a sin offering for himself, a bullock, not the goats. But this scapegoat, uh, in verse 10, I meant to say, is one is presented alive to God. The other one is sent out into the wilderness. <coughs> and we'll see that he's sent out into the wilderness alone. Now, where would Christ ever go to be alone that is not something he likes. He does not like to be alone. Now, he did sometimes go up on the mountain to find a place to pray where there was no, no one around. Did he go there to be alone? No. He went there to be with his father. <coughs> he wants to be with his father all the time. And being around people interfered with that relationship with the Father, so he went up and found a place in the mountains to go pray, not to be alone. You do that sometimes. I do that sometimes. I go out here in the desert or up to Kaibab or up wherever. Not to be by myself, but to try to get closer to God. Because I might be feeling alone or frustrated or lonely or whatever, and I know that getting close to God is going to fix that. So, go be with Him. And then come back and you can deal with people better when you're closer to God. So, Christ is never depicted as being alone. And once we're married to Him, says I think it's in Thessalonians 4, then we'll be with Him ever, ever be with Him. Always, never apart. When he goes back and forth from earth, heaven to earth and back and forth a few times here at the end, he'll always be with us. From the time that he comes down and he's with the two witnesses and the uh, remnant church, we'll be with him really from then on because he's always there 
and then will go and be married to him and always eternally with him on the same level. It'll be a change in relationship, but on the same level. This one sent out into the wilderness by himself. He's selfish. Okay, go live with yourself. That's not Christ. He's never assigned to go off and be alone in the wilderness. He didn't he doesn't carry our sins. He forgave our sins. Satan caused our sins. He bears the responsibility and he will carry them throughout eternity on his neck. So he sent out with our the responsibility of our sins on his head. Christ forgives our sins, whom Satan was responsible for in our human nature, and doesn't carry them anymore. They got washed away with his blood. I just realized this morning, I was thinking again about those things, the uh, I've got to check it, but the total eclipse, I think, goes over the southern end of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico and comes out at Corpus Christi. Blood of Christ Mountains, Corpse of Christ, or Body of Christ, exit from the country. There's just so much in there. There's more yet, I'm sure we'll find. But God is giving us some pretty strong statements in those three eclipses. I have no doubt of that. But his blood washes away our sin. But he's not responsible for us having sinned in the first place. That was the devil. And he's going to carry the guilt of that throughout eternity. The guilt. Not the penalty. The penalty was death, and Christ lived that, or did that. Satan bears the guilt. There is a huge difference there. And that's why these two goats are created differently. One is brought before God, before the eternal. The other one's yeah, out of here with you. Disfellowship from everything and everybody forevermore. No longer to be around. That's another reason that this day is such a holy one. Because it pictures Christ as this one goat that was sacrificed for our sins and removing them, and you have no more sin. After we keep this day, I'm getting ahead of myself again, he calls us holy. A day that pictures holiness. That's pretty important. So it is a very solemn time. And it is a very solemn time to see Satan taken away. Now, there may be joy in one sense, just like there'll be joy at our wedding. Satan gone, that's reason for joy. Marrying Christ, that's reason for far greater joy. Satan, I don't think there's, maybe joy is the wrong word. There's relief uh, that he'll be gone. There's thankfulness that he'll be gone. Uh, We'll never want to think of him again. Because we have something better to think about. And he won't be coming around making us think about him anymore. No temptation. 
Anyway, uh, the one goat is killed for the sins of the people. And then, verse 26, And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So he lays hands on him and confers those sins and the guilt of them on him, and a fit man comes, someone capable of doing it, and hauls him off in the wilderness. Doesn't kill him. That's the penalty of sin. You go to Revelation 20, and you see that one comes, an angel, someone powerful enough to take hold of Satan and bind him a thousand years, put him in solitary confinement for a thousand years. This is perfectly. And I think that has to be Christ himself who does that. He's the only one who is fit, who has defeated Satan in the temptation. Remember when Gabriel came, or is it Michael, one of the two, to give a message from God to Daniel. And he couldn't get through because he had the, he had the same power that Satan does. They'd both been archangels. So an archangel had a certain amount of power, and that's all. So it was a standoff there between the two. Now when the other archangel came, then they put Satan aside and got the message to Daniel, who was thankful after having fasted to get it. So Christ is the only one powerful enough to be the man fit to do it. He'll put him away. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, solitary confinement. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. That can't be Christ. He's getting married. He's going to be with his father and with his bride and all the holy angels and the elders and all that. He's not going into the wilderness alone. And in Revelation 20, it says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. Where's Christ going to be? Ruling from the New Jerusalem in the millennium right here on earth with all kinds of people around. He's not going to be in solitaire. Thank you. And this was so solemn a ceremony that afterward Aaron put off his garments, washed himself, washed everything. Verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever to you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourns among you. From that day shall a priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Eternal. So he confers the sins on the one goat, and he uses the sacrifice of Christ in his blood to cleanse us of all sin. And it's on the Day of Atonement, because when the tr Day of Trumpets comes, we will be raised and become spirit, and then unable to sin, 
And when we become at one with Christ, we will be holy and sinless, having perfectly righteous garments, white garments, no sin. You'll be clean from all your sins. It shall be a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. And the priest whom he shall anoint, and whom he shall consecrate the minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement, and shall put on the linen garments, even the holy garments. Why do we wear generally white dresses, a bride, at a wedding? To connote pureness, whiteness, cleanliness, cleanliness, and a type of the holiness of the bride of Christ and the holiness of the Father and the Son. Now, in our society today, where very, very few are, remain virgins when they're married, maybe they ought to wear a different color. <laughs> that connotes holiness. It connotes purity, cleanliness. And if you've been fornicating and you've been lying and stealing and doing all kinds of stuff, and you come to get married, and you put on this white garment to picture holiness, and your life is not any example of Christianity, much less holiness. Now, maybe that's taking it a little far. Maybe you should wear the white as a type of what you shall become, but it isn't necessarily a type of what you have been. <laughs> you know, there's a difference there. Christ wants his wife to be virgin, to be pure and clean and holy. That means she has no sin, and if she has sinned, it will all be wiped away, all be cleansed completely, so she can be completely white and holy before God. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. So it's to picture eternal whiteness. Now, we're in that engagement period and we're still in the cleansing process, getting ready to be the bride. So that's why we're putting away sin and asking God to forgive us of our sins. Now, I painted a pretty nasty picture a few minutes ago. Maybe all human brides should wear black dresses to their wedding because they've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. No, I don't think so. I think we, as humans, as church members, who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, <clears throat> are not yet perfect, and we still do sin. But we go to God daily and ask for forgiveness, and He does forgive and gives us a fresh start every morning, as Lamentations tells us. So we can come as a type of a white bride-to-be. So it's still okay if you sin to wear a white dress. But in some ways it's a it's a, a mixed thing. <laughs> you're not what you ought to be yet, but you're working on it. <coughs> That's why he tells us not to have garments spotted by the world. We're holy through the forgiveness of Christ. And yet, as we move through the world, we get 
dirty spots on our dress, if you will, spotted by the world. Christ wants to present his bride to the Father unspotted. That's in, where is it, Peter? Somewhere back there. All right, let's go to Matthew 25 then. I'm discussing a lot of things before I get to them, but we'll, we'll just hit them. Today I wanted to hit some of the high spots, not just dwell on one aspect of atonement. Matthew 25. <clears throat> Story of the ten virgins here. The kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Now these were all ten of them anticipating being the bride of Christ. There are a lot of people out here in this world today in different churches who believe they're to be the bride of Christ. Now I'm going to show you that's a very limited number of people a little later on. And everybody who thinks he is to be a bride of Christ isn't going to be. And that's what this parable is about. They all went in anticipation and expectation, if you will. And five were wise and five were foolish. So you can be a candidate, you can be engaged, and still have some foolishness. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just part of being human. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. The oil represents the Holy Spirit of God. And without the Spirit of God, Christ will not recognize you. If we're still living a sinful life and we're not under that Spirit and its forgiveness, He doesn't know us. But the wise ones took oil in their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, seems like it's taking him a long time to get here sometimes, doesn't it? We wait and we wait and we wait. Well, we got good news yesterday. I think some of the events that are going to happen very shortly now uh, portend his coming soon. At midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go out to meet him. So all ten arose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are gone out. And the wise answered, saying, No, there might not be enough for us and you. Go where you can get it. Go buy it. Where do you buy it? You buy it of God, of Christ, over time. You go before His throne and you ask Him to fill you with His Spirit, to lead you, guide you, direct you, be involved in your life through His Spirit. That takes time. When He's descending out of the clouds, you don't have time to go get His Spirit because there's only one place to go and here He comes and it's too late for you. You buy His Spirit through reading this book and have it expounded to you because it is life and Spirit. You don't have time to go read the Bible when He's on His way down. So it's a warning to us. And while they went to buy, oh, oh, I guess I better go get some somewhere else. They don't know where to go and it's too late. The bridegroom came and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage and the door was shut. And afterward came the others saying, Lord, open to us. And he answered and said, I say to you, I know you not. 
And the instruction is, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man comes. Be ready. You can't put off getting ready forever, can you? Well, when I get around to it. I'll get ready when I get around to it. And I found through life around to it's so hard to find. You put it off and procrastinate, and here he comes, and you aren't ready. Now is the time to be preparing. Pentecost to trumpets is the time of preparation. And when he's coming down, you'd better have your oil in your lamp and be ready. That's what the long hot summer is all about, is preparation. Sewing your dress, getting your ducks all in a row, being sure you're prepared and ready and in the right attitude and have overcome a lot of things that would get in the way of the marriage. No, when he comes, it's too late. By atonement, you'd better be ready. You better be ready by, by trumpets, because that's when he's coming after you. The knight in shining armor is coming after you to take you to the marriage spot on the Father's throne and the sea of white glass, a sea of glass at the Father's throne. So when he comes in glory, be ready to be changed and to rise up off the earth. The five in this depiction don't rise. I don't know you. Why should I have you come and be at my wedding? I don't know you. You haven't made yourself ready. You haven't cleansed. You haven't prepared. Pretty serious scripture here. Go to Matthew 22 then. We'll see some more serious. This, this isn't something to trifle with. The Day of Atonement is a very, very important day. It's the day of the marriage of the King. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. This is to the Pharisees. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Now, he is calling many, has been, and now, having spewed the church out, he is choosing the few. Many called, few are chosen. So, many... God called to see if they would accept. Now, we already know that once he spewed us out, only 10% are going to accept and come. 10%, the remnant, to build his church, to build his temple, to build his city. Only 10%, that's all. This depicts the whole thing pretty well. It wouldn't come. Christ stirs 10% to come, and the rest won't come. This is, act, this is coming to pass in real time, very soon now, when he makes that call, and they don't come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them what you're bidden. And no, according to John uh, 6.44, you can't come unless you are bidden. So you have to be invited to be part of the church of God today, by God opening your mind and ultimately giving you His Spirit. Without that call, you can't find Him. 
But with it, you can. But how many are going to answer the call properly? That is the question. So, he sent other servants and said, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. Big announcement. Maybe carrying a sign. Come to the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. I got my life to live. I don't have time to pursue God. I know he must be there somewhere. And if I ever get upside down in a well, I'll holler his name. But meantime, I got things to do. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard of that, he was angry. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now, he's made a call. Not too many are going to answer when he says, Come to Zion and dwell with me and obey me and serve me. Most are going to hang behind. And then Satan's servants are going to kill them, martyr them. And God's not going to be happy with the whole thing. But it's coming. And he's going to burn up the cities of the world, isn't he? He's going to punish because of the martyrdom of the saints. Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go therefore to the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. Think of world history in this way. From Adam and Eve on down, well, he got pretty violent, pretty wicked, so he destroyed all but eight people. And it's got increasingly worse and worse ever since until we are as in the days of Noah. Terrible, violent world we live in. So God has bid. Nobody answer. Nobody would come. So he says, go out and find anybody who's willing Anybody who's willing. And how many people out of the, they say, 60 billion who've lived on earth, how many have been ready and willing? How many have answered when God it says, obey me? How many Israelites did? Had 70 going into Egypt and about 3 million coming out maybe. And none of them would have anything to do with him. You brought us out here to die. Okay, you can wander around for 40 days, 40 years until you die. But meantime, you're not following and obeying me, are you? And you're not receiving my blessings. And this has been the story all the way through. Very, very few people have obeyed God in the history of the world. You can count them real easily. So we have this. He had the plan to have a wedding before he ever created mankind. And he even had Adam and Eve get married as a type of that from the very get-go. And he's been watching. Where's the bride? Where's the bride? Where's the bride? Oh, they all went that way. Where's the bride? Once in a while there will be one. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses. Rahab. <laughs> Some will answer. 
but they have to get ready for the wedding no matter who they were. Verse 10, So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now the guests here, this is a parable. We're the guests. We're also the bride. Uh, But it's a question of all these people who are guests finally being chosen to be among the number that is the bride. So we're depicted here as guests until appointed and sealed as one of the 144,000 who are the bride. So it's still in the guest area in this parable. Bad and good, but they've got to be made good at some point, don't they? That's why atonement, all our sin is forgiven and Satan is banished and we'll have no more sin. <clears throat> then we'll be clothed in white. So the wedding was furnished with gifts and when the guests, and when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Rutro, no telling what he was wearing, but it wasn't a wedding garment. It wasn't all white. He wasn't ready for the wedding. And he said to him, Friend, how didn't call him wife, didn't call him bride, called him friend. How came you in here not having a wedding garment? And he didn't have an answer to that one. He was speechless. Oops. I guess I should have showered and shaved and put on a wedding garment. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So he's been calling all of these guests to make them bride. And here was one that was there as a guest, quote-unquote, who was not qualified to be bride, and he was bound and cast out. This fellowship. You can't be at this wedding. Is this pretty serious? Yeah. I want to be at the wedding. I want to be bride. But I certainly don't want to show up with spots and wrinkles and dirty clothes. Don't want to be there. Because I don't want kicked out. Now, this is a parable. Those things aren't exactly... He'll never let you get as far as the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets and then kick you out. You'll have to be kicked out just before trumpets. If you're not going to make it, you'll be left on earth. So this is a parable of a human wedding where that's the way you would handle it. But his is handled a little differently. Now let's go to Revelation 14. Almost done here. I'll try not to hold you too long today. (coughs) It's harder. Revelation 14. Here's the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion with Him 144,000 having His Father's name written in their foreheads. Now they were sealed according to chapter 7. Same 12,000 from each tribe. 144,000 had the seal of God. (coughs) The contrast is Satan's mark of the beast in your hand or your forehead. 
Because he's going to make it where you can't even buy or sell anything unless you have that. And it is in process of being uh, made and disseminated right now as we sit here. So he's making it uh, available very soon, and you can't go to the store without it. You either have God provide for you, or you starve to death. Or they kill you. Which would be even actually better than starving. So you either have the seal of God or the seal of Satan. 144,000. His name on their foreheads. Not Satan's mark, but God's name. <clears throat> and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. That's Christ. And as the voice of great thunder. That's in chapter 1 of this book. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000. You think you can't sing. Wait till this happens and you're not a part of the 144,000 and you can't sing the new song. This is a song only those can sing. It's the Bride of Christ. It's a song written especially for her. And nobody else can understand it. Nobody else can sing it but them. Now, I've always wished I could sing. Still do. And I know then, if I'm one of those, I can sing, and I can sing well, and I can sing before the Father and the holy angels are all going to stand in awe of my singing. That will be the very first time that has ever occurred to me. And to a lot of you who think you can't sing. But you will. And you'll sing something nobody else can. That about breaks me up just to think about it. That's the bride of Christ. He tells us in the messages of the churches in chapters 2 and 3 that they'll sing a new song in his kingdom. Here he repeats it and says who it'll be. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. He wants virgins as his bride. Now, everything in this life is going to have ended, right? They will have, begun, they will have been forgiven of all their sins, and they will no longer even be human, which means that whatever they did in this life, good or bad, and sex and marriage, which is good, will no longer be there. It will be gone. They will be new in the kingdom, new beings, spirit beings, not corruptible, uncorruptible, perfectly clean before the eternal. So their whole entire past will be wiped out. And they will be new beings, virgins, in every respect. Not just sexually, but in every respect. So when they get together, they are in white robes, and accounted as virgins. He's not going to marry anybody who isn't. 
Now that's why he stresses in this life that it's better not to fornicate and to be a virgin when you're married. Because it's a type of Christ and his bride. And you don't want to sully that, even as a human. That has to be repented of, forgotten, and moved on from. And thankfully, when we're made spirit, it'll all be gone. Because we'll be new as spirit beings. <coughs> totally new in every way. You know, you can go buy a used car and they can detail it really nicely and they can touch it up and everything and so on, but it just doesn't have quite that new car smell even though they've got that thingy hanging there. It's a used car. Christ wants a new car. He wants a new bride. He wants everything to be perfect. He doesn't want a used up one or a used one. He wants a new one, a fresh one, a virgin, in every respect of life, in every respect of being. And he can do that for us. Wow. He can clean up any mess you ever made. And he's going to. This is a pretty good day. This isn't a day to mourn, it's a day to fast, to humble ourselves before Him who is so great, because He's offering for us to be as great as He is, to become one with Him. Wow! This is an important day. They don't get any more important than this one. In fact, I think in some respects, in a different way, it's more important than Passover. Now, if he hadn't started the thing by forgiving sins in the beginning and Passover, this wouldn't be happening. But the day he died for us, to him is not going to be as great a day of joy as the day he marries us. That to him is going to be a lot more fun day. He'll drink wine and feast with us and laugh with us and be thankful that he has a brand new, clean, white bride. That's what this day is all about is humbling ourselves and accepting His sacrifice and His holiness and being absolutely clean and pristine and white. And He can present us to His Father for the first time as sinless, totally, never to sin again. How does He present us to His Father today, daily? Uh, God i got something to tell you. <laughs> yeah, Satan just told me. He came up and accused. This time I'm afraid he's right. We better forgive him. So it isn't with the same kind of joy that he'll have at the wedding supper. That's going to be so special. Father, I don't have any complaints today. Nobody sinned. Here's 144,000 who have not sinned all day long. Will you accept them? Son, I've been waiting for this. I'm going to make them the holy city. We're going to dwell in them. Our throne is going to be in this holy city. And they will never again have a tear 
a pain, a fear. They're going to live a perfect, wonderful life throughout all eternity. Yes, son, I accept her. <laughs>